The following podcast is brought to you by the Bridge Bible Church in Somerset, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit our website at thebridgewired.com. Revelation chapter 11. So that is where we will be this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to chapter 11 of Revelation. We will not get through the whole chapter today. We're going to look at two witnesses that appear here that John sees, and we're going to speculate with the best of them as who they could be and what their mission is and where they fit into this whole timetable. So as we look at this passage, uh, one thing that I just want you to take note of is the grace of God, how he brings witnesses to preach. They're preaching repentance, but they're preaching that there is one whom every eye should turn to, every knee should bow to on this side of heaven before their death or destruction comes, and it is the Lord Jesus. And so we have two witnesses in, the, in this time as we're looking through the tribulation. And it, again, it just highlights that in the midst of judgment, in the midst of the things that God is doing to wake up the earth, to call back Israel, and to prepare for the kingdom, he is still faithful to give the gospel to any who would come. And so, If you would, uh, follow along with me, Revelation chapter 11, we'll do uh, verses 1 through 14 today. When I was given, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. 
But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So here is the word of the Lord for us this morning. We see these two witnesses along with this image of the temple. So let's start with the temple where John says in verses 1 and 2, he says this, Then I was giving a measuring rod like a staff, or it could be a reed, this idea. He was given a, a stick like a staff or a reed, a measuring rod, and he says, I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So he's measuring the, the temple that he sees there. But he does not measure the court outside the temple. He's told, leave that out. For it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, John is, is measuring this. And when John wrote Revelation the temple had already been destroyed. So he was exiled on the island of Patmos. He was taken up. He's given this vision, and God says, go and measure the temple, and this is what's going to happen. So in John's mind, he's thinking, well, the temple was destroyed in 70. So this is close to 90. This is in the late 80s uh, that John writes this, as best we can tell. And so John's thinking, well, the temple's going to be rebuilt, but not the whole temple, just the, the temple proper and the inner court and that. So the outer court's going to be left out. So John is, is seeing a temple being rebuilt. And God says to him, the outer would be trampled by the nations for 42 months. Now that's three and a half years. So when we're looking at the 42 months, and we're looking at that, the uh, time of prophecy for the the two witnesses, the 1,260 days. We have to remember that we're on the Jewish calendar, not our calendar. Ours is 365 days. Theirs is just 360. And so it changes the way it all shapes up. So it comes to three and a half years. It's three and a half years. It says that the, the, that the nations will trample this uh, area, that it will be given over to them. So some think that this three and a half years, due to the way that it's stated, being that it's, it's talking about the 42 months and not given in the days, that they're talking about the second half of the Great Tribulation, the, the, the second three and a half years, that they will trample it. So some believe that it will happen. What John is hearing and seeing is that after Antichrist comes and sets up the abomination of desolation, then the 42 months of the trampling will, will happen. So we have to remember, how does this temple, like we're thinking about, well, how did this temple get built? When will this happen? We have to remember that the Antichrist will come, and he's going to broker a peace deal. And as he brokers this peace deal, it's going to seem likely that part of that deal will be that it allows Israel to build the temple back. 
Right now, it's, it's actually brokered by a third party, an Islamic group holds the Temple Mount proper under their care, under their watch. So something has to happen for them to, to have a deal made and have peace brought to where they can start building. And Israel is already preparing for this. They've already been gathering all the material and all the things they would need for the altar and, and for, the, for the inner courts and everything that would be needed to restore the temple. They've already been gathering and preparing this. They're looking for this to come. They're looking for a time when they can rebuild the temple. And so there will be one that God says in his word, this, this Antichrist will come and he's going to broker a peace deal and they're going to start to build this temple back. So they will start building at the beginning of this peace. Now, this is not the millennial uh, temple. The, the temple in the millennial kingdom, that's spoken about in chapter 40 of Ezekiel and goes to the end of Ezekiel, and that one's much different. It's much larger. In fact, as you start reading about the one in Ezekiel, after Christ's return and the temple that will be established when he is on the earth reigning, you're like, man, this, this encompasses all of Israel. Like, this thing's huge. Yeah, it's very different. So this one is the tribulation, the tribulational temple. This is what they're building during this time. So if we are looking at the end, as we have been doing from, from a historical, this will come point of view, not some of the different views, but we're believing this is prophetic, this is coming, this is yet to happen, then we look at a couple of different passages saying that this, this must happen uh, literally to fulfill Daniel Chapter 9, verse 27, where it says this, And he shall make a strong covenant, that's the Antichrist, with many for one week. The one week is the 70, uh, as we had talked about, the three and a half years broken into two uh, ends. So you have this, the, the last week, the 70th week of Daniel here. So we have this seven-year period. Antichrist makes that deal. They start building the temple. And so he shall put an end, it says, though, and for a half of the week at three and a half, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. Well, what does that mean? That means there has to be a temple. For him to put an end to it, they have to have built it and put it back in place. So Daniel 9, 27 talks about that. Daniel eleven thirty one. Also, it says, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And so that's looking for a temple to be set up, and he will remove the offerings. And chapter 12, verse 11 of Daniel says, and from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So that's talking about another three and a half year period after this uh, abomination is set up. And so that would have to be fulfilled. The temple would have to be built. Jesus in Matthew uh, Chapter 24, verse 15, he talks about a temple in the end days. And he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So Jesus is saying there will be a time where a temple will be built and, and what Daniel spoke will happen. And then Paul speaks about a temple in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, 
who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And so even Paul's saying there is a moment where one will come and set up this abomination of desolation in the actual temple. So as we look through Scripture, we see that there is a literal fulfillment that needs to happen for this to to come about. And that's what verses 1 and 2 point to, that John's saying he's measured this out and they've built this temple. Verse 3 goes on to say this, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, this 1,260 days is the first half of the tribulation. So as, they've, as scholars look at this, they say, well, the 42 looks like we're talking about the temple built and then the abomination made and the last part of the tribulation. But here it's speaking in the days, the number of days, which usually points to the front half. And so the, the thought is here that these two come at the beginning, and that makes sense because if they came later, then where they die and, and how they, uh, the number of days of their preaching, it just doesn't fit. It just, it, they have to come at the very beginning. So God says these two witnesses will come at the beginning of the tribulation. So somewhere at the time when this deal is struck, two, two witnesses show up in Israel. And they start preaching, wearing sackcloth, and they're preaching repentance. So they come at the beginning of the tribulation when the temple is being built, and they will preach, and they will preach this repentance. So again, remember the 1,260 days is on a Jewish calendar, 360 days, so that's how we get the three and a half. It says they'll be wearing sackcloth. That would be strange. It would look like this. This is a picture of David. This is David in mourning. So he's, he's wearing his tunic and that, but he's got sackcloth on, and uh, he's, he's in mourning. So these two witnesses are going to show up, and they're going to look strange. They're not going to be dressed like everyone else. They're going to be wearing, be preaching that people should come and turn and, and receive Christ, receive Messiah. They're preaching judgment that is coming. And again, if it's at the beginning, then they're there when the seals are being opened. We're seeing the earth being struck by judgments. They're there at that time, and they're proclaiming, this is what God's doing. God is doing this work. This is what is happening. Turn, repent. Come, receive Christ. They're, they're, they're preaching in sackcloth and ashes. They look very strange. And it says that they're given uh, authority as well. Let's look at verse 4 as it describes them a little bit more. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. They're the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, this goes back to uh, what is spoken in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. We read this, and, and there's more of this language actually in that chapter. So if you want to go read that whole chapter, uh, there's more going on there. But it says this in these couple of verses. It says, And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips. And on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. 
and there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So in this passage of Zechariah, is, is he's shown olive trees in a lampstand, and because of that, there are some that think that these two witnesses, actually that, that the identity of these two witnesses goes back to here, and they believe that it's going to be Zerubbabel and Joshua, that the two are going to be of who Zechariah is speaking of. So Zerubbabel was governor and Joshua was the high priest and they were coming and they were doing a work of the Lord and, and they were called the olive trees and the lampstand. And so they said, oh, well, that, maybe that's who these two witnesses are. And they look at this verse. I, I think there's others that, that fit this better, but honestly, it doesn't tell us. <laughs> it doesn't tell us who these witnesses are. But we're going to speculate with the best of them. And so here's one thought. So what we should see, though, what we should see is this, that the olive tree represents the fullness of the Holy Spirit as well as peace. It's a symbol of peace. I mean, if you remember Noah and the ark, the, the dove brings back an olive branch, that things were being set right. They're back in rhythm. There's, there's peace. They could, they could go out soon. So this idea, there's, there's this Holy Spirit anointing. These men are filled with the Spirit of God, and they are preaching peace. It doesn't sound like it, but that's what repentance is. It's, it's calling us back into our right minds. <laughs> I mean, running after sin in the world, you, you are going crazy. You're running after the wrong things. They're calling us back into our right standing with God. They're calling us back to have peace with God. So they will be full of the Spirit, and they will be preaching this message of repentance, which is a message of peace. But then it also says that they are lampstands. So the lampstands, too, are there to remind us of the power they have, and that the power that they have is not in themselves. It is from the Spirit of God. The, they are the olive trees that are full of the Spirit. It's the oil that fuels the lamps. It's where their power comes from. It comes from God, not from them. And they are equipped for three and a half years to do all that they are to do, even under great pressure. And they will minister with great power. And so we see in verses five and six, some pretty scary stuff. It says this, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Man, aren't you glad that God didn't give you that? You're thinking, I would like that. And yeah, and we would misuse it, wouldn't we? <laughs> We'd be like, oh yeah, you know, like just, yeah, road rage would just be awful. Um, all of that stuff. But these two can bring fire for those and consume those who would come to harm them. They're preaching, and people would come to stop them, and it says that God gives them this ability to, you know, I, you think of a fire-breathing dragon almost, like they, fire comes out of their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how uh, he is doomed to be killed. And then it says this, and then they have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and that they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. 
again. Praise God that it is by two men full of the Spirit of God, by the anointing and leading of God, that they are ministering with this power. This, this is not to be taken lightly. And I think if it was one of us given this power, strike, oh, I can strike the earth with any kind of plague as often as I desire. Clean your room. No? Oh, yeah, well, flies in your room for a week, you know. Whatever I want, as often as I want. We see out of this where we have a couple others that come to mind. So here, they have flames to consume those who harm them. They can shut the heavens with no rain for three and a half years. That leads us to think of Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 10, it says this, But Elijah answered the captain of 50. So Elijah pronounced the judgment, and the king didn't like the judgment. He says, go get Elijah, bring him back here. And it was kind of funny because they said, who said that judgment? And their answer was, some hairy guy with a belt wrapped around him. And he's like, that's Elijah. <laughs> go get him and bring him back here. So they send out the troops, and they send out a captain with an army of 50. And he says, hey, the king's calling you. You need to come in. And Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Now that didn't happen once, that happened twice. Another group comes out. And by the time the third group comes out, by the way, that guy doesn't say, hey, the king wants you, come on. He says, spare my life, please, like, don't kill me. Just, just come with me. You know, like the guy's begging him at this point. And that's when the angel of the Lord tells Elijah, go with, go with him. So Elijah calling down heaven, calling down fire from heaven and consuming those who would come to harm him. And then Elijah also is known for shutting up the heavens. For how long? Do you remember? Three and a half years. And so here, they will shut up the heavens. There will be no rain during their prophesying for three and a half years. So in 1 Kings 17, 1, it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, uh, uh, Tishbite of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then we see further on at the end of Kings 18, 45, after the, the whole battle with the prophets of Baal and their, and their destruction, he goes and he prays and it says, In a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. So it was by his prayer at the end, after three and a half years, that the heavens were open. So Elijah, who also uh, makes an appearance later, and we'll look at that, is, is a great candidate because of these things that he has done. This looks just like the miracles Elijah did. But then we have two other things that are mentioned here. The, they can turn water to blood and they can bring plagues. Well, Exodus seven nineteen reminds us that the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt and over the rivers and their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. 
And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So it didn't even matter if they had it before stored away, all the water would be changed. And we see that by Moses' hand. And then in Exodus chapter 7 through 11, Moses brings great plagues upon Israel. So there's 10 plagues spoken of there in those chapters. The first one's water to blood, then frogs and lice and flies, the dead cattle, boils, hail and fire, locusts, darkness over the earth, and the death of the firstborn. And so we see that these prophets, these two witnesses, will be able to strike the land with plagues. Will they be these plagues? Uh, We don't know particularly what the plagues will be, but they are able to strike the land as often as they want, whenever they desire, and anyone who comes to harm them will be consumed with fire. And these men will be preaching in Jerusalem as the temple is being built. So we see Moses and Elijah are good candidates, and then we see them again, and here's another place where they, where they pop up in the New Testament is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Matthew 17, it says this, and he was transfigured before them. So that's Jesus with Peter, James, and John. They're up on the mountain, and Jesus is changed. He's, he's in the glory of the Lord, and he's shining and bright, and he's radiant, and his face shone like the sun, it says, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, Moses and Elijah show up here. They represent the law and the prophets. And so it seems that the the ones that would come to be the witnesses of God would represent the fullness of God, the the law and the prophets. And, And here we see them with Jesus speaking on the mountain. And a little side note, I heard one pastor, and I thought, oh, that was so, that's so cool, uh, was this, that Peter's looking at these guys, and he knows immediately who they are. And they were dead well before Peter ever was around. And yet he looks at these two that are standing with Jesus, and he's like, that's Moses and Elijah. Like, he knows who they are. So what does that mean? Well, I like to think it means that we're going to recognize everybody when we get to heaven. I won't be like, hey, um, guy, how are you? You know, like, I'm going to know your name. So if I don't have it on this side of the cross, be, uh, be encouraged. I will remember your name in heaven. <laughs> I will recognize you, and I will know who you are. Uh, but here we see that these two are there on the mountain. And then they're also mentioned in Malachi at the end, at chapter 4. Now, this one, this one I... I just sat with for a while. This is what it says. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, we know that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, and we know that sometimes the prophecies of the Old Testament have a spiritual and a literal fulfillment. And I look at this one, and I think, this is a great passage pointing to Moses and Elijah being the two witnesses. I mean, here is a literal fulfillment. Elijah will come, 
and he will preach, and he will turn Israel back to the Lord. Back, and, the, and he says he will bring this reconciliation, and then, or what? Lest I come and strike the land, and that's what we're talking about with their, with their powers, to strike the land with these plagues of utter destruction. And then it says, when will he do it? Before the day of the Lord, before the return of Jesus, right before the return, I'm going to give you Elijah. Like, Elijah will come back. And so, here is a great uh, argument for Moses and Elijah to be these two witnesses. There's several places there. Verse 7 of our passage, we read this in Revelation. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And so the Antichrist is going to come at the midpoint. He's created a a covenant with Israel, and they've built their temple. But these guys have been preaching for three and a half years and, and causing terror on the land because people don't like their message, and it causes them anxiety and terror. No one likes to be told they're wrong, that they have to repent and change. And so they're like, oh, every time those guys talk, like, I just don't like it. I don't like their message. They're not PC. Did you see what they're wearing even? I mean, like, ah, like. I don't like these guys, and I, every time I hear about them on the news, I'm getting anxiety and all this stuff, and I, you know, and then the stuff they're doing, they're terrorizing us. They're like fire from their mouth and all these plagues and different things, like, oh, and people are afraid of them, but then the Antichrist comes, and he wages war on them, and he kills them. So after three and a half years, their testimony is finished, as God said it would be, and they're they are killed. Verses 8 through 10, we read this. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So we know they're in Jerusalem, but spiritually it has become Sodom in Egypt. It says, and for three and a half days, some of the people and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. So they're just going to let them stay out on the streets. Like, they won't let anybody bury them. And and so they're going to be out there for all to see. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And so it says for those three and a half days, people are going to be celebrating. And it's not just a local holiday, it becomes a national, global holiday, something like Dead Prophets Day, I don't know. But they're rejoicing because the torment of their message and the work of their hands is finished. And and so it looks as if, who's who's the victor? The Antichrist. It looks like this is the guy. No one could touch these people but this man. This man not only could broker peace, he could come and he could kill these foes. He is the one we follow. He's the one that we want to be with. So why are people so deceived? They look at the Antichrist and they think God is dead and the Antichrist killed him. Like, we follow that guy. And they make merry and they give presents. And I just think about it. I mean, my imagination kind of goes wild with it. I think about how people would behave and they probably send presents to one another that would just be a mockery of the plagues and of the things that they did. I mean, isn't that the human nature? 
verses 11 and 12, it says this, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Why? Not because, oh, it's the Lord, it's retribution time. Oh, they're afraid. They're afraid. Great fear fell on those who saw them and then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And so they are raptured up. They are brought up. So all of the earth watches this. Everyone can see this. In our day and age, this does not seem to really be an issue with technology the way it is. God calls them up to heaven and he raptures them just as we had talked about the church earlier being raptured. But if you don't buy that, you say, no, I don't think that's really where the rapture happens. Maybe it happens right here. This is called the mid-tribulational rapture if you believe the church gets taken up at this moment. So it's at the mid-trib the, when the uh, Antichrist comes and the witnesses are called to come up and they are taken up and maybe some have put the church as being there. So we see a couple of places in Scripture where raptures happen. There's some scholars say there's seven in the scriptures. We're going to only look at just five because that's all we've gotten up to. There's two more yet to come, so to speak. So let's look. First was Enoch in Genesis chapter five. He walked with God and he was no more. He was taken up. Elijah in 2 Kings, he was taken up in a chariot uh, and he passed the mantle on to Elisha. Uh, the third one is Jesus's ascension in Acts chapter one. He was just taken up in the clouds. That's a, that is a rapture, that is a being caught up. That's all rapture means. The church in 1 Thessalonians 4, which we said that passage coincides with the end of Revelation chapter 3 when the church is raptured. Or you might put it here, and there's a double rapture in 5, the two witnesses and maybe the church at the mid-trib. So this is what we're talking about, about these raptures. And if you wondered, like some people say this and this, this is where mid-trib happens. So if you don't think it's at the beginning, you think it's more in the middle, this is where this one happens. We'll talk about pre-wrath and post as well when we get there. Verses 13 and 14, it says, At that hour there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in that earthquake. And the rest were terrified. And they gave glory to God of heaven. So they're, okay, God, we know you're not playing. The second woe has passed Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So we see these two witnesses, and they are preaching the gospel to all who will listen, no matter the cost, no matter the persecution and the, and the things happening. They've come full of the Spirit to preach grace and mercy to those on the earth in the middle of this tribulation. So what do we take from it? You have the Spirit of God living within you. Church, we are olive trees in lampstands. We are to go in the same type of spirit, to go and preach the gospel to people that, that Christ saves and he wants them to be changed and transformed and made new. We have an opportunity now, while it's days of favor, as we've talked about, to share Jesus with friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, before this time comes, before the tribulation gets here. And it seems as if the days are running fast towards these last days that we're reading here. And so we, like the two witnesses, should go out preaching a gospel that man 
can be saved if you would turn from his wicked ways and receive the Lord. It's the gospel that saved you and me. It's the gospel that will save many in the tribulation. Will you stand with me? We'll pray and then we'll sing. I'm sorry, we're a little bit over on time, but um, it's been a good day. been a good time in the Lord. Father, we thank you for all that you're doing. And we thank you for this passage. And as we think about this, the awesomeness of Revelation, um, it's not lost on us that while we don't know the beginning and the end, you know all things. You know the beginning from the end. And, and so we take courage in that. And we ask, God, that you would just uh, encourage us to say yes uh, in, in serving you and, and just ministering to the nations, that we would go with the gospel You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us all we need for life and godliness. You've transformed us from glory to glory, and you've sent us into the harvest field. So, Father, may we go. May we go and proclaim the goodness of Jesus to those who would hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping Him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.